goodbyes are often hard. We know that. Friend moves away, the beloved pet passes away. Goodbyes can also be a doorway to joy, eagerly anticipating new adventures in a new city or college farm. Sometimes goodbyes can be awkward. We know that too. You know, saying goodbye to a friend or a date, only to realize you're actually walking in the same direction, right? Oh, oh, you're going that way too? Okay. And then there are goodbyes that are messy, painful, and yet altogether necessary. And that's the kind of goodbye Jacob experiences here in Genesis 31. He's leaving town, leaving Padan Aram. He's been there for the past 20 years, but now he is going home to the land of Canaan. But he's not just leaving, he's escaping. The text makes that abundantly clear. Verse 20 says he was running away. He ran off secretly, verse 27. Verse 21 says he fled with all he had together with his family, his livestock, all of his possessions. Why? Because as we've been seeing the past couple of weeks, Laban, Jacob's near abusive uncle, father-in-law, and boss, has been holding Jacob and his family in virtual bondage. As Jacob himself explains with, with not a little bit of emotion in verses 38 to 42, he has worked for Laban now for 20 years. And despite being deceived and taken advantage of multiple times, Jacob labored faithfully, diligently, sacrificially, and yet Laban, again his father-in-law, stole from Jacob's flock, manipulated the circumstances. Jacob says in verse 41, you changed my wages ten times. And even though Jacob had amassed considerable wealth by this time, he just knew that Laban would have pocketed all the profits you would surely have sent me away empty-handed, Jacob said. So he grabbed his people, grabbed his stuff, and ran. Now what can we possibly learn from this strange goodbye story? How should we apply it? Perhaps we can take this as a spiritual allegory of sorts. Uh, maybe as an invitation to run away from sin. Many people have pointed out in reading this story, in reading these past couple of chapters, pointing out that Laban is actually portrayed in the Bible as sort of a mini-pharaoh. See, sin can be a taskmaster. Sin looks like freedom, feels like freedom, promises us freedom, but sin actually holds us in cruel, cold bondage. Is there a, a, a sin that's got you stuck? A sin that you need to run away from today? 
again this week, we're starting the season of Lent, a wonderful period whereby we are reminded about our deep need for the cross and resurrection of Jesus. Being on journey with Jesus, we are reminded of the importance of confession and repentance of our sin. Is there a sin you today need to run away from? You might have noticed that, that strange moment in verse 19 when on their way out, Jacob's wife, Rachel, were told, stole her father's household gods. What's going on there? Did Rachel, in a moment's weakness, desperation, did she fall back into the worship of idols? Or was she maybe more interested in the just the monetary value of those little idols, those ornate objects, on their way out into a land of uncertainty? Or, since household gods were told by historians actually symbolized entitlement to a family's inheritance back in those days, but was she actually laying claim to her inheritance rights, sort of enacting symbolically, this ought to be mine, all her inheritance that had been in fact stolen by her own dad? It's not exactly clear why Rachel took her dad's household gods, but this much is clear from the passage. It's exposing the weakness and the futility of these little gods, these idols. See, while the God of Jacob was delivering Jacob and his family, the gods, the false gods of Laban were totally powerless to save and protect Laban. See, in the same way, all the things that we tend to look to to give us security, self-worth, beauty, happiness, love, all the, yes, idols of our heart, not little figurines, but desires that can enslave us from within. These things are utterly powerless to save us too. And so this story echoes wonderful warnings and invitations from the New Testament, like 1 Corinthians 10, 14. My dear friends, flee from idolatry. Run! 2 Timothy 2, 22. Flee the evil desires of youth and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. Flee, run, and run to Jesus. Run to Jesus. He offers you not only forgiveness, but also freedom and life. Come home to Jesus. So we might view this passage as a, a spiritual metaphor for the call to flee from sin, but I think there's also another way, a second way that we might read the story. You might say that this is an, an earthier way of seeing ourselves in the story, of seeing a shadow of our own relationships in the terribly dysfunctional relationship shared by Jacob and Laban. In other words, this passage tells us that there are times when it is right to flee from toxic relationships when it may be necessary to leave an evil person and to say goodbye. 
let me be clear. Before we move forward, be clear and be quick to add that the Bible is not telling us to bail out on people easily. What, after all, is Scripture's overwhelming emphasis in regards to broken relationships? Ephesians chapter 4, verse 2, be patient, bearing with one another in love. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 7, love always hopes, always perseveres. In Galatians 5, 22, listed among the fruit of the Spirit is forbearance and faithfulness. In Matthew 18, when Peter asked Jesus how many times he should forgive someone who repeatedly sins against him, Jesus replies, not seven times, but 70 times seven. In other words, stick with others because Jesus sticks with you. It's probably not an exaggeration to say that one of our generation's weaknesses in relationships is not persevering in hard relationships. We can tend to be so quick to give up, to cancel, to ghost, to move on. Jesus carries us along what therapist and author Chuck DeGroat describes as a trajectory of love with the hope of forgiveness and reconciliation until it proves impossible. He continues, this is not a love that allows evil to trample over us, nor a love that passively accepts it, the self-giving love of Jesus is active, though not reactive. It dies a thousand deaths for the sake of the other. It calls injustice and abuse what they are, but it doesn't live enslaved by the need to get payback. It sees the big picture, knowing that redemption is a long, slow road. But sometimes, this passage invites us to consider this, sometimes we do find ourselves in severe situations, relationships that require more than ordinary relational practices and tools, that is, relationships like ones with Laban. Laban, who made a habit, a lifestyle out of lying, and cheating, and stealing from Jacob, basically holding him in economic bondage. And it wasn't just to Jacob, again, not just his employee, but also his nephew and son-in-law, but he did this also to his own daughters, the women that came from his own self, where he basically sold them for profit, pocketed for himself, that prophet never gave them their rightful dowry. Even Rachel said earlier in the chapter that he basically stole what was rightly theirs, not giving them appropriate honor and a share of the family's inheritance. As one commentator put it, Laban combined a slave master's ruthlessness with a patriarch's sense of aggrieved entitlement. Indeed, sometimes the greatest villains are those closest to you who see your growth in terms of their own advantage and your independence as a threat. Laban wasn't going to let them go. You see that, right? He literally chases them down as they leave. 
In verse 36, Jacob describes what Laban was doing. He uses the language, you hunt me down. Uh, verse 22, he says, uh, we're told that Laban pursued Jacob for seven days and caught up with him in the hill country. This word pursue, sometimes it's used as language for a predator. You're hunting down your prey. As I said earlier, a lot of readers of scripture have, have noticed in Laban similarities to Pharaoh. Jacob for years stuck in service to Laban then chased down when he escapes. And then finally, Pharaoh, I mean Laban, catching up with the escapees during their encampment. It's clear from the passage that Laban has every intentions to kill Laban, I mean, to kill Jacob if he can when he finally catches up to him. It's why God needed to show up in Laban's dream to put a halt to it. Not just don't speak to Jacob, but don't engage him. Don't do what you intend to do. And even when confronted with his wrong, Laban's response is, look, all that you see is mine. He's got all the markings of a megalomaniac and a narcissist. He still doesn't get it. Dan Allender, a therapist, counselor, author, gives helpful, helpful categories for understanding people like Laban. We're, we're told that it, it, our call to love people spans across different kinds of troubles, uh, people that can oppose us to different degrees and in different ways. There are relationships we might have with what you might call normal sinners, right? It's still hard, uh, but there's a, a, a back and forth engagement with wrongs that even when it's difficult, even training, even over a long period of time, there's still hope for resolution. But then Allender says there are other categories of persons that we find especially in the book of Proverbs. Uh, the second category, uh, which the Proverbs calls the fool. Uh, this is not just the person that's not intellectually up to par. It's not talking about that. It's talking about a moral up to parness. A fool is someone that's self-consumed, stubbornly resistant against correction. The fool can be warm and can be sympathetic towards others. We see that in Laban, even at the end of the passage, giving hugs and kisses to his grandkids. But Allender says, but only to the degree that it requires little of them. Fools are often marked by anger that's often impulsive, intimidating, often intense, disproportionate to the situation. The whole point of it is to gain compliance and control. Fools are often marked by arrogant pride. The fool uses this arrogance to hide an enormous fragility, Allender says. Fools hate the pain of discipline. The fool is repelled by the process of honestly facing his life. Some desire to repent, but when actually called to account, generally they are stubborn to change because they're avoiding the opportunity to be humble. And then there's what the Proverbs calls an evil person. 
Uh, you can see the escalating intensity. An evil person. These are people who seem to just live and breathe evil. But don't be mistaken. It doesn't always look like that on the outside. Deep down, there's a heartlessness and a cruelty. No sorrow or remorse. A total absence of empathy or shame. And being totally unaffected by their wrongdoings being exposed. But again, there can be an outward politeness. In fact, this is one of their greatest weapons, a manipulation of what is appearing to the normal eye or perception as to be normal behavior when deep down inside, it's the ugliest of manipulations. Oftentimes, they hide behind a facade of normalcy, but we need to understand the deep craving of the heart is unlimited power and control, seeing its victims as objects to be controlled or destroyed when confronted, blaming the victim, and always unable to be bargained with. Whereas a self-consumed fool will show occasional vulnerability, that this evil person is incapable of vulnerability or self-awareness. And so, Allender says, your job then is to protect others from that kind of person and to pray that somehow God's grace can break the death grip of evil on that person's soul. Laban probably falls somewhere in between category two and three. The, the fool and the evil person. And in the remaining time that we have, I just want to talk about five things that we see that Jacob does that we can learn from in dealing with people like this. Fools, evil persons. This is not a sequence or not a, sort of a, a, a rule book to follow or perfect list of ingredients of what to do, but rather just a few flashes of righteous behavior that the Bible gives us. And I want to recommend to you what I drew extensively from, and that is two books, Bold Love by Dan Allender and Tremper Longman, and also a second book, Toughest People to Love, by Chuck DeGroat, which I quoted earlier as well. So if you want to learn more, look at these books, read them, but let me draw out for you quickly five different points of what we see in Jacob's actions as he tries to learn to engage Laban. Number one is the importance of knowing who you are. Knowing who you are. In verse 42, Jacob says this to Laban, If the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the fear of Isaac had not been with me, then surely I would have been destroyed. But God was with me. And notice how he identifies himself as the one who's bound to God. The God of my fathers, the God of Abraham. There's a long story of God's attachment, faithfulness, protection, love, devotion towards me. This is Jacob's God, and this is your God. You could almost hear him saying, along with that song that we sing often here, if it had not been for the Lord on my side, where would I be? God has been with me. And here's the point. When you engage with people that are very difficult to engage with, uh, when they show signs of a deep resolve and commitment to evil, or when there's just a serious, long-standing stubbornness to change, it's hard. And so you really need to know who you are in Christ. Here's how Chuck DeGroat puts it. You need a, a 
firm sense of your core identity in God as loved and secure beyond anything that could happen from happen to you. So that you're able to relate, engage from a position of security rather than just reactivity. The call here is to be secure in your own identity as one beloved of God. Which includes, of course, trusting that God is committed to being with you. Committed to being present with you even in these painful trials. God is with me. God has been with me for these 20 long years is the confession of Jacob. Can you confess the same? To know that God is a God who is protecting you, his beloved child. That he is one who knows personally, in the person of Jesus, the feelings that surround betrayal. He knows what that's like. He, he knows what it's like to be emotionally harmed, physically harmed, sinned against. This God of the Bible is not a stranger to the pain that we feel. He's near to you in it. And he promises to protect you in this. I was thinking about this verse a lot this past week. Psalm 121, verse 5. The Lord watches over you. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. I mean, look at the shadow here, right? You can't run away from your shadow everywhere I go that my shadow will follow me. So sticky is the love of God. Sticking with you, following you no matter where you go, even in the dark. God protects his people. And in fact, he even restrains the evil of people as we see here in the way that God shows up in the dream of Laban of all things in order to tell Laban, don't you dare touch my son Jacob. Jacob acknowledges that too. He says, God rebuked you. It's worth praying for, banking on God's protection from hostile people. We must start with knowing who we are as we engage in these hard relationships. Number two, feeling the feelings. You might notice Jacob confesses to Laban, I was afraid. He says in verse 31, because I thought you would take your daughters away from me by force. That's actually the language of robbery. You're going to steal my family from me. Jacob was afraid. He was also angry. You see in verse 36, we're told Jacob was angry. That's a word that literally just means hot. Jacob was hot with anger. See, why this is important, and this point is going to be brief, but why this is important is so often when you feel trapped in a relationship that is not working, that is toxic, and that feels like it is draining the life out of you, so often it becomes hard to actually honestly express how things feel. Sometimes we are numbed or even confused or uncertain about feelings. It is a good thing, it is a right thing to allow oneself to feel indignation that is righteous, to feel the fear and to name it and declare it before the person across from you. Which brings us to the third point, 
not just feeling the feelings, but naming the wrongs. We're told in verse 36, before Jacob went on this long speech, outlining point by point what the last 20 years have been like with Jacob, we're told in verse 36 that Jacob took Laban to task. Now that just sounds like the narrator is saying Jacob just gave Laban a shellacking or something, right? But the actual word behind that is the same word that the Hebrew language uses for a lawsuit. Jacob was bringing legal testimony to Laban. He, he was stating the facts of his case. He was sort of bringing charges. In other words, he was bringing to light all that Laban had done. Uh, again, you almost get the sense that a lot of this was boggled up in Jacob for a long time, 20 years perhaps. And now he's finally found the courage to tell true. Again, Allender writes, we are to mirror back to the fool a response that allows him to see the reality of his foolishness without standing in the way of his wrath. And then Allender gives one example. For instance, honey, right now your voice is loud and violent and your words are rude. It seems clear you want us all to bow to your demand for power. Telling the truth, respectfully, humbly, but uncompromising. Allender continues, exposure of this kind, bringing light, shedding light to, onto what's been happening, the, the sin and the harm that's been done, even the evil. Exposure involves forethought, planning, and acceptance of a likely loss of relationship that might be temporary or sadly long term. In other words, this is precisely why sometimes we don't want to speak up. Because we know that there might be some loss or change in the relationship, repercussions. This, uh, again, the, the, the call here is to calm, rational speaking of truth in a way that actually exposes the wrongdoing of this individual so that there might be a breaking out of stuck patterns. Uh, what, what, Chuck DeGroat calls a well-planned disruption because there can be patterns that can hold the relationship in bondage. You need to break it up and change it up and keep the person off balance. Sometimes part of this naming of wrongs also involves naming of consequences of their harmful actions. He helpfully tells a story of a woman who all throughout her childhood and as an adult has been berated and even emotionally verbally abused by her parents for many, many years. And she's been trapped in this relational dynamic, not knowing how to get out until through therapy and the work that she had to do found the tools and the moral courage to begin to speak up. And one of her very first conversations in standing up to her parents, lovingly, respectfully, but truthfully, sounded something like this. She said, Dad, do you recall the conversation a few nights ago when you yelled and called me some terrible names? Well, I told you then that I would no longer allow you to sin against me or yourself by enduring your use of rage and shame. Before you get too much more intense, by the way, this is on the phone. Let me make it clear again. I will not stay on the phone if that is your manner of relating to me. Dad, are you willing to think about the ways you deal with me and frankly, almost everyone else in 
our family. It takes a lot of courage to say that, but especially for this woman who had been sort of diminished as a person by this abusive dynamic in her family for many, many, many years. It, it was incredible what it took for her to even say that. Her dad responds, let, let me tell you, I have no interest, you know, listening to a kid who has no more sense than, and then she interrupts him, dad, I will look forward to the day you do desire to interact, so I'll be talking to you soon. Goodbye. And of course, that led to years of careful, thoughtful, persistent engagement with clearly set parameters and a stronger sense of self. But she named the consequences of these harmful actions. She called them out, and she was hoping for Dad's repentance. See, Jacob, in his extended speech, he ends with, God rebuked you. He, he makes sure that Laban knows that God is in the picture. In the end, what the desired result is, as Allender says, is that exposure must leave the fool alone to wrestle with God. See, so even in the naming of consequences or the setting of boundaries, this is a hopeful deed, even of love. To show a person the extent of their wrong and to point them back to the one who's after them, after their fault. Of course, in doing this, you're ready for pushback. A person, again, a fool, an evil person, does not back down easily, quickly. You expect defense or anger or the manipulation that will come, and we see that in Laban. He tells lies. He says, you carried off my daughters like captives in war, as if they're kidnapped. But no, actually, we know in verse 16 that they agreed, they blessed Jacob. They said, we're out of here too. Our dad has been wronging us all these years too. He's playing the victim, Laban is. He says, you've deceived me. You've wronged, right? I mean, he's the one that's perpetrating all these wrongs, and now he's saying, you're hurting me. And he's dishonest in his manipulation and even what's often called gaslighting. Right? When they're trying to almost tell a different story, it makes you second guess, wait a minute, do I got this wrong? Or maybe he's not such a bad guy. He says this, why didn't you tell me? Why didn't you tell me so I could send you away with joy? And singing. This is so I could send you away with joy and singing to the music of timbrels and harps. And then he says this, you didn't even let me kiss my granddaughter, my grandchildren and my daughter goodbye. As if suddenly, th this is the tender-hearted man that we're supposed to trust. Gaslighting, manipulation, and of course, threats. You see in verse 29, after all that, Laban goes, well, you know, I could have killed you. I have the power to harm. L literally, you could render that translation, it's in the power of my hand to do evil to you. Oh, Laban wants to make sure Jacob knows who's in control, who's boss. As I said before, according to ancient Jewish tradition, Laban intended to kill Jacob and his family in this moment, if not for the protection of God. So you're ready for the pushback, not backing down even when gaslit, knowing that evil knows that we are unwilling to face shame or loss, knows 
Dan Allender points out so helpfully, evil knows that we are too scared to be hated and to be alone. And so then there are those threats that like, don't you know all you're going to lose if you lose me? By opposing me, don't you know all that's going to go wrong in your life? Which is why trusting in God, again, back to that first point, is so crucial, is so critical. Knowing who you are, knowing whose you are. Allender says, evil is deceitfully subtle. In fact, it portrays itself as helpful, open, kind, generous, long-suffering. And this is exactly, almost literally, what we hear in later. Which leads us to the last point, or the second to last, actually, drawing wise boundaries. You notice by the end of the story, to his credit, it's actually Laban that says, okay, let's say goodbye. I mean, he's cornered. He knows he has no case against Jacob, right? Jacob brings his charges, so to speak. Laban cries out against them, but actually doesn't have a case, and so he relents, and he says, okay, fine, this is what we're going to do. We're going to draw a line, boundaries, and we're going to make a covenant. That's an accountable promise, an agreement that we're going to make that you're not going to cross this line over to my space, and I'm not going to cross this line over to your space. Verse 44, come now, let's make a covenant, you and I, and let it serve as a witness between us. And so there's this memorial that was built, one stone and a pile of stones, one stone representing Jacob's one God, and this pile of stones that appear to represent Laban's many gods. And then they sit down and they have this sacrificial meal where they're sealing the obligation to respect each other's territory, this boundary line, and they agree to some peaceful coexistence Maybe something like what Romans 12, 18 says, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Sometimes friendship is impossible. Sometimes the full extent of reconciliation is not only impossible, but actually is inadvisable in the absence of repentance from an evil person. But live at peace as far as it is up to you. Do your part, whatever you can. But here's the call, the wisdom of drawing boundaries, setting parameters. Uh, Whether if it might be online, blocking that troll, or if it's in setting parameters of conversations, not letting it to go to that hurtful place every single time, stating so. Or whether if it's restricting access that the hurtful person has to your life, to your family, to your heart. Or if it might even mean a temporary or sometimes near permanent distancing of relationship. See, the idea behind these boundaries is simply this. The fool will continue to grab more power. Again and again, the the pursuit will be in order to dominate, to control, and to find victory. Uh, Evil, Allender says, can never be overthrown through rational, reasonable argumentation. You you can't just uh, casually talk it through when it's a fierce cruelty of this kind that's coming after. And one of the greatest gifts one can give a person inclined to evil in this way 
is the strength to frustrate their attempts to dominate. This, of course, always includes an opportunity for that person to repent. Of course, of a certain kind of repentance, not just a flippant apology, but rather, as de Grote puts it, an offer to repent eventually will address over time the issues of one, the violation of relationship and details regarding the damage done. Two, a perspective on forgiveness and hope. Three, a statement of the parameters of love and consequences of violation. Four, a picture of what would need to occur in behavior and art before the relationship can be rectified. And five, a negotiated agreement about what will occur now to begin the process of change. So, not simplistic repentance when the evil has gone on for so long. Not an erasing of consequences. Not an ignoring of hurt and damage that's been done, but still with some possibility of repentance, some hope in the power of Christ's redemption. Allender says cutting someone off from relationships should be done only after significant time and prayer has been expended. First to set parameters, apply consequences, and opportunity to repent. Further, the steps should not be taken without consultation and prayer with older and wiser believers. Should never occur rashly in a moment of anger, nor quickly after only a few interactions with the evil person. Nevertheless, at some point, Allender says, it is not loving to continue an evil relationship with a person who consistently and perniciously sins against you without some sign of repentance and change. This, too, can be a severe form of even love, doing best not only of what's for yourself, but also for the other person. And finally, this obviously then takes us to this place of weakness, this, this place of need, this place where we need to fifthly be entrusting this relationship to God. You hear this language, the, these pile of stones that represent the presence of God in this boundary, in this agreement, the belief that God is alive and active and working, and he is the one to whom both of you, both parties, are ultimately accountable. He is the one that will actually be the one to judge over people's actions. He's the one ultimately that alone has the power to save and rescue and heal. Again, in verse 53, may the God of Abraham, the God of Nahor, the God of their fathers judge between us. They are inviting accountability and oversight. By God's grace, perhaps there might be the possibility of repentance and change. But even if not, God is the one that holds these relationships in his hand. And so you personally don't have to. Because, you know, the big picture of this story is that God is keeping his promises even in the mess. God is keeping his promises to Jacob even in the brokenness. God is persevering with his people even when it feels like everything is falling apart and everyone is pursuing you. We're told in verse 54 that Jacob offered a sacrifice and they shared a meal, a traditional way where covenants were formed. I mean, you could almost picture it. This wasn't just a, hey, let's grab a quick bite to eat kind of meal. A sacrifice was on the table. Friends, it was a bloody meal. It was an acknowledgement that it would take nothing short of death 
to actually hold them accountable. It took nothing less than death actually for them to find true and lasting peace. They would do their part, but a sacrifice, something bigger and greater than themselves would be needed, even the very sacrifice of God himself. Jesus is the only hope for our severely broken relationships. The only hope of true healing is a greater sacrifice, Christ alone, who can save. See, don't you know what Jesus did in his sacrifice for us, his death, what it means for us? Jesus endured suffering at the hands of wicked men who nailed him to the cross so that we might have his spirit, God might live in us, so that we would have power to endure the worst of wickedness. Jesus died and conquered evil, so that no evil would ever ultimately conquer you. Jesus will always be with you. He never says goodbye which means you might lose a painful relationship, but don't be afraid, you will never lose Jesus. And he promises us too that one day when he returns, he will restore all things, bringing us into a forever world, the new heaven, the new earth, a world of unbreakable love in which there will one day be no more. Jesus is our hope. Jesus is our Savior in the midst of our severely broken relationships, in the midst of our naming evils, in the midst of our setting of boundaries. Don't we know that Jesus is near? Oh, friends, didn't our Lord deliver Daniel? Deliver Daniel. Deliver Daniel from... The lion said, surely he will defend us. God delivered Jacob. God delivers his children, even in the midst of hurtful, sometimes excruciating things. God knows. God delivers his children, faith-filled and resilient. Let's pray.